The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. As we gather back together, why don't we spend a moment in prayer together? Father, we've been amazingly privileged already tonight to hear rehearsed in the best sense of the word uh, the astonishing story of your stooping to us. And if, I, if anyone else in the room has experienced what I have, God, it's, it's both the sense of incredible attraction to this extraordinary story that is uh, nothing we could make up and is so uh, transcendently beautiful and also, honestly, a sense of fear, wanting to withdraw from this story, wondering whether I'm really committed to this story, wondering how much this story is going to cost me if I'm really going to live it. And we are complex enough that we're capable of both being incredibly attracted by the gospel and incredibly frightened of it. So I ask that your Holy Spirit would be in this place. That you would be equipping us to respond to you, to open ourselves to you. And that you would be, um, if necessary, in a sense, tearing us open so that new birth can happen and true transformation can happen not just for us but for the world that you've given us to steward and to care for. So Holy Spirit, we implore you (laughs) to hover over this room and the chaos in our own lives and make of it something that has order and abundance and beauty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Nate, uh, for, for that um, amazing gift to us. I want to talk about the image bearers a little more. And uh, Nate and I did not coordinate in any way. We have not met before this weekend. Um, But while there's some really marvelous resonance going on uh, that might have something to do with the fact that we uh, do read some of the same books. And uh, so I want to talk about what happened to the image bearers. The image bearers who were supposed to bring flourishing, who were supposed to garden the whole of the earthly realm that they were given. I want to mention, there's something I do want to mention about the image bearers that I think is very significant. Do you remember how in the Babylonian epic, Marduk, the god of order, slays Tiamat, the goddess of chaos, disorder. And the Babylonian world puts these two on on two poles of a linear spectrum, order and disorder, but also implicitly in that story and explicitly in the lived reality of that society puts the male and masculine identified with one corner or one end and the feminine, female or feminine, identified with the other. And it's so striking that when God creates in his image in Genesis 126 and utters that 
great, great, amazing cohortative, let us make human beings or man, man singular uh, in the Hebrew, in our image and in the image of God, he created them. That just as in the monotheistic God there's the ability to speak plural, so in the creation of man, to use the traditional English language, uh, Adam, to use the Hebrew, singular, it turns out that for that to fully realize it, it has to be in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. They are both image bearers of God. They are both, both constitutive of the image of God in the world. And it is not that one pole represents order and the other disorder. One represents virtue, the other uh, diminishment of capacity. It's that together they image God. And over and over in the Bible, there are these astonishing togethers that you don't expect and you don't see coming. And again, in a, in a completely patriarchal environment of the ancient Near East comes this confession that the image of God is only seen when male and female, man and woman, image together. It's amazing. What happens to these image bearers? Well, I think we have to understand they have two qualities in far greater, to a far greater extent than any other creature that the Lord God makes. The image bearers have two qualities far more than any other creature. And the first uh, is authority. So define authority as the capacity for meaningful action. When you have authority, you're able to act in the world and something actually happens. And it's, it has meaning. It participates, I think, Maybe one, thing of, one way to think of meaning is it participates in a, a lasting story. So when you're granted authority in some domain, you act and it matters that you act. So I've been given uh, 35 minutes of authority tonight. Uh, and I've given a lot of capacity. I'm given what I like to call the wireless headset of authority, which I wear. Uh, Nate merely got the lavalier of authority, but I got the wireless headset, so there you go. Uh, Lights are on me, right? I'm elevated above uh, the rest of the people in the room. I, I then use my body to assert certain kinds of authority. I make larger gestures than I would if I was talking with you. If I did this while I was talking with you, like right here, it would be very odd, but it's completely normal for me to do this. Speakers will sometimes begin to address their audience as if they were children, like I just did, right? It's crazy things that you would not do in a, in a one-on-one interactive conversation. I do, and why do I do that? It's to project authority. And we all hope that my use of that authority will have some meaning. That it won't just be meaningless action, wasted 35 minutes, but that somehow it will have an effect. We all come kind of hoping for that. (laughs) I certainly hope for that, but so do you. And human beings are given the capacity for meaningful action to a far deeper degree and a far greater scope than any other creature. Other creatures do act in the world. They do behave in the world, and they do even bring certain kinds of changes in their environment. But no creature has turned out to have the capacity to act in the way human beings do. If nothing else, because every other creature acts in a certain ecological niche. So the dragonfly, I guess in its two phases, underwater and then above water, 
But you take your dragonfly and put, it, put the dragonfly in this room, the dragonfly would, I suppose, starve and f- flail and fail as a creature. It's not constituted to be able to have meaningful action in this room. Human beings don't, aren't limited to a single niche. They're meant to f- be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So there are now human beings living everywhere. Human beings live in Denver. Human beings apparently live in Idaho. They, <laughs> they live in Canada, I've heard. The steppes of Siberia. There are human beings on the continent of Antarctica where surely no human being was ever meant to live, except we go there strictly. The only reason we're there at the moment, really, is to study the world. And this is another aspect of the authority we have, capacity for meaningful action. No other creature can, can examine the world and discover meaning in it the way that we can. No other creature looks up at the stars and says, we need to tell a story about these stars. <laughs> they have to mean something. So it's either going to be a god and a fish, or it's going to be, you know, we've got to tell a story here. Because human beings are designed even to travel to the farthest edges of the planet, farthest reaches of the planet, in order to tell our own history, to tell the story of our cosmos in a more comprehensive way, and know what's going on in the world right now, what's happening to this world as human beings care for this world. No other creature acts with that much authority. And we're given dominion over other creatures in a way that they're not given dominion over us. So I look out uh, the window at my... Uh, backyard, and there are these squirrels in my backyard, and they're acting in certain limited ways, and I have a delight for squirrels. I'm not quite at the level of the dogs in the movie Up by Pixar who are, you know, almost perfectly programmed, but every time there's a squirrel, squirrel! You know, I'm not that bad, but I can be distracted for quite a while just watching my squirrels. I said my squirrels. They're not actually my squirrels. (laughs) these squirrels that happen to go through my backyard. I've noticed something. They never really watch me. They, certainly they don't behold me. I mean, they may avoid me. You know, like, oh, human, make sure you don't go, don't go too close. But they don't, like, sit there and gaze at me through my window and say, oh, a human. Wow, look, a human. They don't even notice the other creatures. They don't notice the birds. The birds and the squirrels don't interact at all, even though they're really cool. They ought to get to know one another. No interest. I'm interested in them all. And I have a sense, a certain sense of responsibility for them. I look at the squirrels, especially at this time of year, carrying a nut in their mouth, you know, scurrying across the ground. And I think, there is no way you are actually going to remember where you buried that nut. I really worry about the survival. I mean, in the winter, I cannot believe they know where they put those nuts. The squirrels never look back at me and say, human, how is your retirement plan going? Are you saving enough? I have no sense of dominion in, me, in my life. But even though I really cannot do anything to help these squirrels, at least not with their, you know, where they uh, left their food, I, I guess I could feed them in the winter. And human beings do that, right? We do that. Because we have authority over them. And we care for the meaning of what happens to them. And we incorporate them into our own stories of meaning. No other creature does this in the same way. So, on the one hand, the human beings have more authority than any other creature. And at the same time, they have more vulnerability than any other creature. So to find vulnerability as the exposure to meaningful risk, that when you're vulnerable, you are exposed to the possibility of loss. That would be my definition of risk, the possibility of loss. And it's not just random risk. It's not just, you know, stupid stuff that could happen to you. It is, it's 
meaningful risk. When you're really vulnerable, something is really at stake that matters a lot to you, and you can't control whether you get to keep or lose whatever that is. And the fascinating thing about us human beings, image bearers, is that we are far more vulnerable than any other creature. So this is true in a very physical way. Uh, it's true developmentally. So other creatures um, emerge from the womb if they're mammals, um, and within minutes they are uh, providing for themselves in ways that take us months or years to provide for ourselves. So a baby lamb is born, uh, and it's a, a kind of astonishing thing to see a baby lamb being born. And within a few minutes, the baby lamb is up and kind of toddling around. Within a day, it's prancing around. Uh, and how long does it take? I mean, it takes eight months, 10 months, 12 months for a human being to, to even begin to walk. And for all that time, we are totally dependent on other human beings. Uh, and to be dependent is to be vulnerable. As if those other human beings in our world don't care for us, we, none of us would have made it, all of us. Every, it's so amazing to be, to be in a room of more or less grown-up people and think we were all at the beginning completely, profoundly vulnerable, far more than any other creature is vulnerable. But not just in kind of physical ways, we are also conscious of our mortality in a way that other creatures aren't. We're conscious of how much is at stake in our lives. Uh, so the psalmist, who on the one hand can look up at the stars and say, you've given human beings dominion over the works of your hands, begins his psalm by saying, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the sun that you set in their places, what are human beings that you even remember us? And that sense of smallness before the world, I think, is something other creatures don't seem to have in the same way. The Genesis account has this interesting way of talking about vulnerability when it says that the man and the woman were naked, though without shame. And it struck me that this is actually a word we do not use for other creatures. There, there is no other creature of which you would routinely say it's naked. So the baby lamb is born, and when the lamb is born, you don't say, oh, a naked lamb. You know, avert your eyes until it puts something on, and then it'll be okay. Put a little cloth. No. The baby lamb arrives with everything it needs to flourish in the world. But to be naked is to be vulnerable physically to the environment. So if even in Denver, I mean, there are little, there are very, very small parts of the world where you really don't need clothing just as a physical matter. Though, having been to the nude beaches of Crete, Greece, Crete specifically, I discovered there what a gift clothing is to 98% of the human race. <laughs> Permanently traumatized by the sight of uh, British tourists, large British tourists, in the altogether roasting like lobsters on the beach, beach of Crete. Oh my goodness, you cannot unsee such a thing uh, for the rest of your life. Um, but anyway, I mean, on the beach of, Crete, uh, beach of Crete, I don't know that you have to have clothes, but in most of the world that human beings are given dominion in, we just need it as a practical matter. But then, of course, on a much more deep level, to be naked is to be relationally vulnerable, to be open to another in a way that is quite, there is a lot at risk in, in nakedness. And no other creature has this. Only we do. Now, uh, people have pointed out to me there is this thing called the naked mole rat. So 
Okay, there is one other creature, and there are those hairless cats that you can see on the internet. I do not recommend searching for this, but if you come across it. Okay, so those are naked cats. But really, there is no other creature that we routinely say is naked because no other creature is vulnerable in the way we are. More authority than any other creature and more vulnerability than any other creature at the same time. And it is on these creatures that God gazes, says, now it's very good because now my image is in the world. And is it, could it be that in order to image God, you have to have both authority and vulnerability? Now, my Reformed friends get a little nervous about this. And they say, well, yes, our authority images God because God is sovereign. God rules. But God doesn't experience risk, does he? Like, God knows the future. God controls things. Well, I don't disagree. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God is an important Christian idea for deep reasons. But my rejoinder would be, the root of the word vulnerable is woundable. And I ask, did God expose himself to wounds or trouble when he created the world? Did God expose himself to the possibility of loss, risk being the possibility of loss, when he created these dustlings and called them as image bearers? Absolutely. It is... I mean, thank you, Nate, for bringing it home so powerfully, this extraordinary thing we Christians believe, which is a resurrected human body that has known death, has suffered death, and has been raised from the dead, is now in the presence of the triune God, in the presence of the Father, in the bond of love of the Spirit, and in that the flesh of that raised body, according to the resurrection appearances that we have passed on to us, are wounds in hands and feet and side. There there are literally wounds in the presence of the Trinity right now. And so maybe if you want to image God, you actually can't just image God in his authority. You have to image God also in his vulnerability. And this allows us to draw two by two, which is awesome. It's like, it's my current obsession is two by twos. So... They're so useful. So it turns out that if you have high authority and high vulnerability, that's image bearing. Up and to the right in this little coordinate system, the further up you are, the further more authority you have, and the further to the right you are, if they go together, you are imaging God. And I, I'm not going to be able to prove this to you right now tonight, but... I would guess that if you think of the moment of the greatest flourishing in your life, it would be a time when someone else acted with authority in your life and at the same time exposed themselves to great risk in your life. And probably you were being given authority as well, capacity for meaningful action, and you were taking a real risk. Whatever it is that you think, that was when I was really truly alive. Uh, There is something about authority plus vulnerability that equals image-bearing that leads to flourishing. It's where we're meant to live. But this allows us to diagnose what what goes wrong with the image-bearers. We can move our way around the other options here. So what would it be to to have vulnerability without authority? 
So to be exposed to great risk but have no capacity for meaningful action. I think there are many words for this and, I, and I, one thing I can know is that there's not a person in the room who hasn't been there in some way. A time in your life when you were unbelievably vulnerable but there was nothing you could do to change your situation. We had a moment of it in the back of the hall where one among us was incapacitated, had a terrible fall, and suddenly, it can happen to any of us at any time, right? That suddenly, wow, so much risk, but so little capacity to know what to do or, or know how to save ourselves beyond that. But if it's a chronic condition, if your whole life is characterized by this, and I would actually say for billions of people on the planet, this is their life right now. They live with tremendous vulnerability, but very little capacity for meaningful action. And so one word for this is poverty. Poverty really is not primarily about a lack of money, merely money. It's about being exposed to the vulnerability of the world and having no capacity to act. One of the most painful things I've seen in my whole life uh, for whole layers of reasons was the 20 seconds of footage that got out of the nation of Haiti right after the earthquake in January 2010. And TV has this idea that they have to constantly show you a picture of something, but they only had 20 seconds. And it was of a mother, a young mother, perhaps 20 years old, with her baby. And she was in her underwear uh, with, with her naked child, uh, wandering in a daze down a street that had been devastated by the earthquake. And, and I thought, there's something so profoundly wrong that this image is being circulated of a human being at a moment of complete vulnerability in every possible way. Uh, and something so, it was so uh, diminishing and degrading of, in fact, the suffering that was happening there. But wow, that was a moment where hu the human vulnerability, and what could she do? How could she act? Very little she could do. And this is where most human beings... <laughs> Live is down and to the right. But there are other options. So what would it be if you lived um, with neither authority nor vulnerability? Neither one. No capacity to act, but also no risk. And there's probably a number of examples of this, but when I think about it, I think of taking a cruise. So I'm not really into cruises, but I do have friends who really love to cruise. So, But I'm going to put the cruise down... Hope you caught that. That was a very expensive animation there. Um, so here's the thing about a cruise, okay? How much authority do you have? How much capacity for meaningful action do you have on a cruise? Very little. Like, you are not Jean-Luc Picard. If you go on the bridge and start saying, make it so, they're going to take you off, you know, down to a very low level of the boat and <laughs> imprison you there for the rest of the... You have no authority on the boat as a, as a passenger, right? But how much vulnerability do you have on a cruise? Now... Yes, I understand. There are these cruises where the engines give out and you end up spelling out help with your bodies in the up, on the upper deck as the, it just circles in great gyres in the Gulf of Mexico. But assuming it's a normal cruise, okay, 
Really, like there is no risk. It's so pleasant. There's buffets every day, just buffet after buffet. You don't have to provide for yourself. No, no meaningful action. But it's all, it's all great, unless you get, you know, E. coli or whatever. But again, this is a good cruise. This is our dream cruise, right? And here's the thing. It, it, it's, it's, beautifully, uh, it's beautifully free of authority and vulnerability, and it's blissful for like three days. It would be hell for three years. If I told you, okay... No cooking for yourself, no acting on your own behalf. There's nowhere for you, you to go. You're just, but everything will be provided. No risk. That's actually hell. And the fact that it sounds appealing to us should give us a little hint of how we might, in a sense, damn ourselves and might say, I don't want image bearing. I want, and I think one word we could use for this is, I want safety. I was sharing, I was actually in the nation of Haiti in May, and I was sharing this model with some church leaders there. And I got to this corner, neither authority nor vulnerability, and these young, really super bright, capable church leaders in Haiti began to object, and they said, no one lives down there. (laughs) That doesn't exist. Like, you can't live without authority or vulnerability. I said, if you are sufficiently affluent in the United States, you can I remember lunch, actually, at the Kissing Camels Country Club, south of here. Gorgeous place, look, overlooking the Garden of the Gods. And you can move into the Kissing Camels Country Club once you've achieved or inherited or you know, however you acquire escape philosophy from risk. And you can move into a gated community and take your lunches at the country club. And I remember sitting in that country club and looking around at these the most privileged human beings who have ever lived, overlooking some of the most extraordinary scenery you could ever see. And I had an overwhelming, kind of terrifying sense that what I was looking at at these other table, tables were tables of ghosts because all the affect was dialed down. There was a tremendous sense of control and moderation and minimizing of risk. And I thought, this is not living. It's what everybody aspires to, and it's not living. But we can choose it if, if we want to. This leads to the last corner. Authority without vulnerability. Now that doesn't sound so bad. Look, how could I arrange to have that? That sounds good. I could have capacity for meaningful action, get to do stuff, but not be exposed to meaningful risk. And this is the promise of idolatry. Every idol makes two basic promises. The first one is, you shall be like God. And the second is, you shall not surely die. Every idol makes those two promises. I didn't make those up. They are the two promises offered by the serpent on behalf of the fruit. And what are they promises of? You shall be like God, knowing good and evil. That's authority. All the authority that God has, you can have. And God had told them, if you eat that fruit, you'll die. In other words, you're dependent on me for life. And if you reach out and grab that fruit, you will no longer be able to access the life I give. And the serpent says, oh, no, no, you're not as dependent as you think you are. You're not as vulnerable as you think you are. Authority without vulnerability is the promise of every idol. 
every idol, not just the original idol, the created thing that they thought would give them authority without vulnerability. And they thought that would make them like God, I think. I think they thought that's what God is like. God doesn't have a lot of risk or dependence. And God has all power. Wouldn't it be cool to be like that? So how does this work? Well, it isn't always um, fruit proffered by a serpent. It isn't always uh, a golden calf. Uh, It can look really appealing. So here's an example. Um, Well, honestly, the first time you see it, it's not going to look like that. It's going to look more like this. So we'll go with that. Um, So here's what it is to be a human being, okay? It's vulnerable to be a human being. And part of the vulnerability of being a human being is when you walk into a room full of other human beings you don't know, you feel a little nervous. So I've experienced this several times um, here with you because I don't know most people here. Um, And actually, I I walked, we were having dinner with the volunteers yesterday, and I walked in, and everyone's like clustered in little groups talking. I'm like, hmm, okay, which group? (laughs) And uh, and very graciously, I don't know if it was Gary or somebody, saw me, and he said, oh, come here. And he said, you looked like you were figuring out where to stand. I was like, thank you, I was, right? It's vulnerable. It's just normal. Now, a few of you are like 100% extrovert, and you're like, oh, 300 friends I haven't met yet. This is going to be awesome. That is not how most of us feel, honestly. I, we get it that that's your reaction, but you are very odd. So the rest of us feel vulnerable. What if I could hand you something that you could hold in your hand and you could sip from it, and the more you sipped, the more that sense of vulnerability would start to fade, and a sense of godlike authority would begin to descend on you. A certain elevation of powers. You'd start to, you, you'd start to uh, dance better, right? Uh, your jokes would become funnier. Other people would become better looking. And you're like, wow, this is not so bad. This is an awesome party, right? And the moment you use alcohol to manage your vulnerability in a social situation, you've gone from treating it as a very good part of God's world to be savored and enjoyed in conviviality with others, to asking it to give you authority without vulnerability. And that's what every idol does. And the amazing thing about idols is they work at first. Idols work at first. At first, they work. (laughs) The problem with idols is they don't keep working. So the next party you go to, it'll probably take two drinks to get that same elevation. And then it'll take, you know, a few more. And so, and, and what you'll find actually is that the results don't continue to be as satisfactory. And then the more you drink, actually the less authority you have, the less capacity for meaningful action you have. Language starts to slur, your command over your own body begins to uh, weaken, Right? And so the thing that promised you authority without vulnerability, the longer you order your life around it and and turn to it for that, actually the less authority it delivers you, and at the same time it actually leads you into greater and greater vulnerability. Until finally in the grip of addiction, people who are truly in the grip of addiction have lost all capacity for meaningful action and are profoundly exposed to meaningful risk. And this is the pattern of idols. They promise authority without vulnerability. They deliver vulnerability without authority. And the prophets say those who make them become like them. 
anything can be an idol. Any good thing that you turn to and you think, if I order my life around this, I'll have the authority I want without the vulnerability I fear. It's amazing that the most powerful company of our time has as its logo the bitten fruit. <laughs> and what, what, what idol is more powerful in our world than technology? Technology gives us all the attributes, all the classical attributes of God, omnipresence. I can project my presence to places where my body can't go. Omniscience, I can know about that earthquake in Haiti without actually incarnating myself there and being there. I can just observe it. Omnipotence, we have tremendous technological capacity to make difference in the world. And so technology has granted us a lot of this, but we're very early in the story of technology. What vulnerabilities is technology actually going to exacerbate? Will it continue to deliver the authority we ask it for? I think that all of us in this room have lived through what will be remembered as the, the brief antibiotic era of the human species, where our medical technology was able to hold at bay bacteria. But we are now reaching the end of the antibiotic era, and that authority we had and minimizing of risk to bacterial infection is now ending. There's now in almost every hospital bacteria that cannot be uh, uh, conquered by any of no the known agents that we have right now. And what happens when that idol starts to fail? I want you to think about that as I tell you the story of the founder of Apple. Because Steve Jobs was an image bearer. Steve Jobs was an amazing image bearer. But he also had an idol. And the amazing thing about Steve Jobs is his idol was not technology. He actually had a very healthy relationship with technology. He didn't let his kids have iPads or iPhones. <laughs> uh, he, didn't, he wasn't obsessed with, with it. He taught the rest of us to be obsessed with it. <laughs> he was good at selling it, but he himself, you know, good dealers like aren't addicted to the thing they sell, right? So this, it, wasn't, it wasn't his thing. But we know, this, we know what I'm about to tell you because of Walter Isaacson's authorized biography of Steve Jobs, published shortly after his death. Uh, in 2011. Steve Jobs did have an idol. And his idol was food. His idol was food. Steve Jobs had what Isaacson straightforwardly calls an eating disorder most of his life. And it began in his teenage years, and this is the kind of thing you cannot possibly make up, during a two-week visit to an apple farm in Washington State in the 1960s. And it was during that two-week visit that Steve Jobs began to experiment with something a lot. People were experimenting with all kinds of things in the 1960s. And one of the things they were experimenting with was raw food diets. And so for two weeks on this apple farm in Washington State, Steve Jobs only ate apples. The only thing he ate for two weeks was apples. And he found that this raw food diet gave him this elevated sense of personal presence and control gave him a kind of ecstatic sense of action in the world. It increased his authority and took away his, any kind of fear he had in a relationship. And he had that amazing piercing gaze that was able to hold people's attention. And he found that eating just fruit intensified that ability to kind of manage and control any conversation, any interaction with one person or with 10,000 people. 
And Steve Jobs never for the rest of his life had a, a healthy relationship with food. He had a disordered relationship with food. He would storm out of the best restaurants in the world because the food wasn't prepared to the way he wanted it. He would leave his own family's dinner table, Isaacson says at times, angry about the way the food had been presented so that it began to disrupt his relationships, disrupt his ability to enjoy the life he had been given. High-functioning, it didn't take over, you might say, but it was his idol. It was his way of having authority without vulnerability. In 2003, if I remember the year correctly, Steve Jobs, in the midst of a routine exam, his doctors found a troubling indication on one test, and they, they needed to do more tests. There was some indication of pancreatic cancer, and when the doctors came back from the t- with the test results and came into the uh, room to tell Steve Jobs the results, they had tears in their eyes, and the tears were of joy. They said, you have uh, islet cell pancreatic cancer, which is the one kind of pancreatic cancer we know how to treat. Uh, Other kinds are a swift death sentence, but this kind, we know how to treat islet cell. It's very slow growing. Every indication is it's confined to one part of your pancreas. We'll perform something called the modified Whipple procedure, take out that one part of your pancreas. You have every reason to expect a normal, full normal life after this procedure. This was October of 2003. Steve Jobs left that examining room and for 10 months tried to treat his cancer with diet. He went to all these people who purported to explain how to treat your cancer with the right food. And he embraced ever more extreme diets. Everyone noticed he was getting thinner and thinner while his friends and family pleaded with him to have the surgery that could save his life. But Lorraine Paula Jobs, his widow, told Walter Isaacson, Steve didn't want to give up control over his body. That's what every idol promises you, is control. And so for 10 months, he tried to treat his cancer with diet. When he finally gave in to the pleas of his family, the cancer had spread. They weren't able to get it all. He was never again free of cancer. And eight years later, he died. The thing that promised him authority without vulnerability delivered him to vulnerability without authority. And that is what idols do. Um, Well, we'll talk about these two images briefly in a moment. So here's the picture. Oh, I should add one word. I don't have a lot of time to talk about this. But the other word for authority without vulnerability is injustice. So injustice is a social system where a few people get to have lots of capacity for action, but it's always at the expense of a lot of other people living down in poverty, having little capacity for action. So whenever you see a system where a few people benefit, they're up and to the left, but the great majority of people find themselves immobilized, exposed to risk, but not able to act. That's a system of injustice, and it exactly corresponds to uh, the idol pattern. It's just the people themselves take on authority without vulnerability at the expense of others living in poverty. I learned about this in a visit to India. I um, got to be with Jai Kumar Christian, who's pictured here, who's the head of World Vision India, and he took me to a district of India where modern-day slavery still happens, where children were being enslaved. And what is that situation, if not a situation where a few people who are moneylenders in a district, they, they, take out, they, they give loans to families. This was a list of children who had been enslaved in just one village, 20 children. They'd all been released by the time 
I got to visit. So Ganti, the number five one there, uh, that would, I believe, be a girl, for 2,000 rupees, which is a loan of about $40, her family had not been able to pay back the loan. And so she was taken as a bond servant, someone who would pay off the loan. But when the moneylender takes her, uh, he actually starts adding her room and, bill, room and board to the bill. So the family's debt actually increases faster. Their vulnerability increases as their child is taken out of school, exploited, in her case, for beady work, which means rolling cigarettes every day, not able to go to school, probably nine or ten years old. And what is, what is that if not one person or a little group of people living with authority without vulnerability at the cost of most people in that village and above all their children living with vulnerability without authority. These were a couple boys who had been slaves just a year before I met them. They had been in this situation. So I'm going to have to skip a couple slides. Sorry, uh, I did not use my time quite the way I would planned, and I want to hear Andrew Peterson get every minute he deserves. So I have like three more minutes to try to land this. This is the world that we have. Something's missing. (laughs) The image bearers are missing. And instead what we have is a few people for a time benefiting from idolatry and injustice. A very privileged few like us having the option to head down into the left into safety. And most human beings living in poverty. And God looks at this world and says, what happened to my image? My image is triply lost. It's lost in every other corner. None of these other corners bear the image of God. So the question is, how will the image be restored? And of course, Nate already gave us the answer. The image was restored in this one who became human who was all authority, all vulnerability, eventually offers himself up to be crucified naked. We don't like to represent this in Western art, but that's how the Romans crucified their victims, to maximize the shame. And so the story that we are now in is not the original story of image-bearing leading to flourishing, because that was shortcut by the temptation of the serpent and the capitulation of the woman and the man. But it's also not the story just of idolatry and injustice and all the havoc they wreak on the image. Now the story we're in is of one who's come to begin restoring his image in the world. So what are we here for? We are here to restore proper authority and proper vulnerability in the world. Let me tell you one coda um, of how that had worked in one part of the world. It had happened in this little cluster of villages that I got to visit in India. World Vision, the Christian humanitarian organization, had gone in 10 years before I visited, in the the, uh, 1990s it would have been. And these communities were communities of poverty, communities of tremendous vulnerability, very little authority. All the authority that was in those communities was bent to enabling and serving the perpetrators of injustice. And World Vision patiently, slowly began to work to restore proper authority to women, to children in that community, and to men in that community. One of the most amazing things I visited in that community was called the Children's Panchayat. Panchayat is a village council in India. And they had like a children's version, like a model UN. 
And the kids would gather on banana leaves in a clearing, and they'd talk about their village and what they wanted their village to be like. They were giving them authority. So you can't just give people in poverty money. (laughs) It's not the main thing they need. In fact, it may just reinforce dependence and vulnerability. You have to increase authority if you actually want to address poverty. And in all these ways, they'd started to address it. And so now, justice was being done, uh, the law was being enforced, the law against slavery, and children were being released, and now they were back in school, except they got out to have lunch with me and, and Jaikumar. So they're in their school uniforms. And a district where almost 100% of school-aged children had been in bonded labor 10 years before, now only about 5 to 8% were still in bonded labor 10 years later. So I got to talk with the girl who's kind of in the middle there uh, through a translator and just talk with her. And you can see that the image had already begun to be restored in her. I mean, a year before, she had been exploited for some kind of work. I don't know what kind. But a man who will exploit a child for labor will exploit a child for anything. She and all of her neighbors and friends her age had experienced tremendous abuse. But now she was back in school. So I said, well, you're in school. What do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, I want to be a doctor because we don't have a doctor in my village. So I'm going to finish school, go off, study medicine, and come back and be a doctor. I thought that was great. So I was trying to think what else to ask her. I said, well, um, what do you like to do after school? Like when your studies are done, what do you do for fun? And she said, we free slaves. I said, well, what exactly do you mean? (laughs) She said, well, there are still a few children in our district who are in bonded labor. And so after school, my friends and I go, and we, I could not believe she said this, but I have it in my notes. She said, we go to the money lender and we tell him what you are doing is illegal. You can be thrown in jail if you keep doing this. <laughs> 10, 11, 12-year-olds confronting the most powerful man in their, in their district. And, and now the law actually was being enforced. So they were, it was true. He could be thrown in jail. And then she said, we go to the child who's being exploited, and we say, you do not have to stay here. Come with us tomorrow. We'll get you a school uniform. Come with us to school. You're free. We free slaves. I realized I had just met my first 12-year-old abolitionist. (laughs) I told Jaikumar this on the train on the way home, and he burst into this uh, smile, and he said, I love that she didn't say world vision free slaves. He said, because then we would just have replaced one wielder of authority without vulnerability with another. We would have replaced a malevolent God player with a benevolent God player. But she said, we free slaves. And he said, now I know it's time for World Vision to begin to plan to leave. Because the image has been restored. Now they're taking responsibility for the flourishing of the little piece of the world that they've been entrusted with. And a 12-year-old is freeing slaves. Why need World Vision when you've got Gandhi working for you? And I actually think that's a great place to end and a great commission for us. I I think that's our commission. We free slaves. We go into the world that idols and injustice have made. Having repented of our own tendency to call on these things, to make us what we were never meant to be, having come out of our own havens of safety, having been rescued by Jesus from our own suffering and poverty, we now are sent into the world to restore his image so that the earth may be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Restoring the image, we free slaves, that's what we're here to do. 
Let's go. In Jesus' name, amen.